There had been plague many times in the country, but the annals of Romania do not mention a more terrible disease than Caragea's plague. Never this scourge has made so many victims. It killed up to 300 people a day, and it is believed that the death toll across the country was more than 90,000. The contagion was so dangerous that the smallest contact with an infected home meant death to a whole family, and the violence was so great that a man infected with plague was a dead man. The fear had entered into all the hearts and made any sense of love and devotion disappear. Mothers left their children and husbands in the hands of fate and fled. All the drunks, all the thieves, hanging a red necklace on their necks, climbing into a carriage of oxen, and going from house to house and courtyard to courtyard. They were entering day and night through the dwellings of men and grabbing what they found, taking money, silverware, watches, tools, shawls, etc., without anyone dare to resist them. Ion Gika, Romanian Historian Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 41, Caragea's Plague On December 12, 1812, a minor Ottoman prince named Ion Caragea, dispatched by the court of Sultan Mahmud II, made his entry into the town of Bucharest, the capital of the province of Wallachia. Caragea had to buy the office. His title in Romanian was Hospodar, and it was said by a French observer that he paid the court of the Sultan 8,000 bags of gold in exchange for the appointment. Whatever it cost him, Ion Caragea wanted to be sure his people perceived him as a powerful and ostentatious ruler. A picture of Caragea survives. He's got an epic gray beard down to his mid-chest, dark arched eyebrows, and a colossal hat twice the size of his head. With brocaded robes and flashy gold rings, as were favored by Eastern European nobles of that time, Caragea seems to cut a figure equal parts Gandalf the Grey and the Jopeshi character from Goodfellas. This was clearly not a man to be trifled with, but unfortunately Caragea's administration had one of the most disastrous openings you could imagine for a ruler. The mansion that was traditionally the home of the Wallachian princes, called the Kurta Noa, burnt down the very first night that Caragea slept there. For, that, for us, that would be like the White House burning down on inauguration night, not the kind of headlines you want to make on your maiden voyage. But as bad as that was, something worse was about to happen and it didn't just have negative effects on Caragea's public image. That very next day, December 13th, several members of Caragea's retinue, who had come with him from Istanbul, allegedly began to sicken with signs of the most terrifying pestilence one could imagine in the second decade, the plague. 
but this is more than the story of a single disease outbreak in some single far-off province of the Ottoman Empire. The backdrop against which this story plays out is, in many ways, more fascinating than the tale of the plague itself. The complex politics and social organization of Romania in the early 19th century is a world so alien to most Westerners that at times it reads like a fantasy kingdom, a Game of Thrones set against the moody backdrop of the country that gave us no less durable a cultural villain than Dracula. This is not a story about vampires, but there is blood in tonight's story, and pus, and puke, and rats, and a lot of other ooky things that were the common surroundings of most people who lived in the 18-teens, at least those who weren't fabulously rich, and even sometimes then. I'm embarking on this somewhat risky episode in part to show you just how dark and dirty the world of the second decade could be, and how in those times, almost everywhere, death was only a heartbeat away. So join me now as we venture into the heart of darkness. Get your nosegay, light your pipe, shake the fleas off your muddy clothes, and get ready to experience Karagea's Plague. Good evening. I've got a couple of very quick announcements before we get into the show tonight. I want to give a very brief update on my condition and also to thank everyone who wished me luck and a speedy recovery, and I have been doing extremely well. I am now officially a cancer survivor. Cancer is not something you'd want to think about until it happens to you, but I've been extremely lucky in so many ways, and I'm grateful for the support. I've got another historical webinar and online class coming up, actually more than one, The next class is the Roaring 1920s, that happens Sunday, April 28th, 3 to 5 p.m. Pacific USA time. Cost to join is $50 for full interactive access, $40 for access to the recorded video. You'll see a lot of historical sites related to one of the most tumultuous decades of the 20th century, and one of the strangest. Everything from King Tut's tomb, discovered in 1922, to the site of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre on the north side of Chicago. This is going to be a really fun class. My next class coming up after that will be on the Soviet era. That will be toward the end of May or possibly very early June. Fans of the Eastern Border podcast, which I highly recommend, might have some interest in that one. My PayPal, you can register through PayPal. Uh, my PayPal is paypal.me slash historyshawn. And please do email me at sean at seanmunger.com. If you register for the class, uh, be sure to give me your contact information. Anyway, enough promotion. As a segue into the subject of tonight's show, I want to say a brief word about reviews of this podcast. I haven't said anything about reviews before. Maybe I should, and perhaps I'll start reading some. And there's an incentive to uh, leave a good review for Second Decade if you need one. But I'm taken by one particular review which was left a few months ago in September 2018. The reviewer, iTunes user Cornborn, said, quote, Podcast talks about events I've never heard of. It's in a story-like format, so it's easy to listen to and not boring. Host is fun and personable, end quote. What I love about this review, thank you, by the way, Cornborn, uh, and thank you to everyone who's left a positive review. Anyway, what I love about this review is the events I've never heard of. A couple of other reviewers have mentioned something similar, that part of the reason people enjoy the pod is because it often is about events and people that they otherwise would never have heard of. Now, don't get me wrong, I've done plenty of stuff on well-known or recognizable history. Napoleon, for example, keeps popping up, or the War of 1812, 
and I even did an episode on Abraham Lincoln. But I'd like to balance the well-known history with the really obscure but still very interesting material from the decade of the 18-teens, which itself is a pretty obscure decade. This episode on Karagea's Plague perhaps goes farther than I've ever gone before in this direction. Among the thousands of people who will download and hear this show, I'd be surprised if even one of you has ever heard of Ion Karagea. I had never heard of him until I was specifically seeking out events to talk about in future episodes. Furthermore, the historical context of who Karagea was, and the backdrop of the devastating plague that struck Bucharest in 1813, is pretty much a blank slate for most people, myself included. As a result, I have to paint the picture of this backdrop basically from scratch, and pretty much completely. This episode is about the plague specifically, but it's also a general picture of the history of Romania in the early 19th century. A really interesting history, but honestly it doesn't get much more obscure than that on this show. This is a long way of saying there's going to be some more background than usual in this episode, so bear with me. Hold in your mind where we left off. Karagea, the new prince, or hospodar of Wallachia, has just arrived in Bucharest in December 1812. The palace has burnt down after his first night there, and then sometime after his arrival, people start getting sick from bubonic plague. I am going to pick up the thread of that story and move forward with it, but we've got a lot of world-building to do first. First things first. The city of Bucharest is today, and has been for a while, the capital city of the modern nation of Romania. If you don't know where Romania is, go to Google Maps, zoom way out on the whole continent of Europe, and then look in the lower right-hand or southeast corner. There's kind of a cluster of little countries there, and Romania is the roughly round-shaped one beneath Ukraine, just to the left of Moldova, and sitting on top of Bulgaria. The modern nation of Romania has really only existed since the 1860s, and in roughly its present shape and size only since 1918. Romania looms in popular historical consciousness most largely as a result of its 20th century history, particularly its status as one of the more depressing Soviet satellite states, and the violent revolution in December 1989 that overthrew its communist dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu. Some of you may also know pretty much one other fact about Romania's history, the only other fact that I knew before starting research on this episode, that it was in this country, toward the end of the 15th century, that a spectacularly bonkers ruler named Vlad liked to impale people on sharp stakes, hence his historical nickname, Vlad the Impaler, and that this person was supposedly the historical basis for the character of Dracula, the villain of Bram Stoker's classic novel, written in 1897. Vlad Tepesh, also known colloquially as Vlad Dracul, or Vlad Dracula, did exist, and he was quite nuts. But the popularity of Dracula, the fictional vampire villain, has tended to distort Romanian history in popular consciousness. In the vampire stories, we all know that Dracula is from Transylvania. And today, Transylvania is one of the three main geographic regions of the country of Romania. However, Dracula, the real Dracula, I mean, Vlad Tepes, was not from Transylvania at all. He was from one of the other two regions, called Wallachia, where Bucharest is located. The third region for the record is Moldavia, a geographic and ethnic region which is now bisected by the modern border between Romania and the nation of Moldova, but that's not important for our purposes. At the end of the 14th century, a hundred years before Dracula began pounding sharp stakes up the backsides of wayward Wallachians, 
This country had the misfortune of being smack dab in the middle of the territory in southeastern Europe into which the growing Ottoman Turkish Empire was expanding. The Turks were in this period replacing Byzantium as the key power in this region. In fact, the Ottomans would eventually put an end to the Byzantine Empire once and for all by capturing Constantinople in 1453. That city became their new capital, Istanbul. The Turks, however, did not directly conquer all the territory they controlled. They had a vast network of vassal states and client states, all owing tribute of one kind or another to the Turkish sultan. But these states usually had considerable autonomy in running their own affairs, while Achia was one of these vassal states. In fact, the whole thing about Vlad the Impaler was that he dared to be an independent ruler to the greatest extent he could, and he generally resisted Ottoman control, at least until a Turkish-backed prince shortened Vlad by a head in 1477. The head was supposedly sent to Sultan Mehmet II. Fascinating, but not our story. Anyway, there was a large cultural divide between the true Ottoman Empire and many of these vassal states. Wallachia, like its neighbors, was overwhelmingly Christian, Eastern Orthodox having been Christianized earlier in the Middle Ages by Byzantium. Islam was a tough sell in these deeply Orthodox provinces, but the sultans were fairly creative in their approach to holding on to this territory. Enter the Fanariotes. That's a Greek word. Of all the languages I've mispronounced on this podcast, my competence is at its lowest when I encounter Greek, so bear with me. The Fanariotes were a cluster of noble and wealthy families, mostly of Byzantine Greek descent, who called home the old Greek quarter of Constantinople, known as Fanar, hence the name. In the 17th century, the Ottomans' long centuries of expansion came to an end. The Turks were famously defeated at the gates of Vienna in 1683, and after that it was all basically downhill. The sultans increasingly had to rely on treaties and tributes to keep the various pieces of their empire in line, rather than brute force. This required a certain diplomatic finesse that the Ottomans had traditionally lacked. As the need for interpreters, diplomats, and merchants increased, the Fanariotes, who had grown pretty rich during the 17th century, rose to fill the void. During the 18th century, the Fanariotes, who, remember, were Greek Orthodox Christians, worked their way upward into the Ottoman state, so eventually most important offices were held by members of Fanariote families. Essentially, they were an elite class to whom the sultans had basically outsourced most of the functions of government, including rule over the vassal states like Wallachia. Indeed, in the 17-teens, the sultans removed the native-born rulers of Moldavia and Wallachia, mainly for getting too cozy with the Russians and Austrians, and replaced them with officials from Fanariote families, who after all depended on the sultans for their own status and power. Nice arrangement, yeah? Because the political attachment of Wallachia to the Ottoman Empire was mainly through tribute, there were a lot of expensive gifts flowing back and forth, usually in the direction of Istanbul and usually to placate the sultan or to outright buy a favor or an office from his court. But gifts of jewels, furs, and expensive baubles went both ways. The rulers of provinces like Wallachia, who were not from those provinces, depended for their own local power on keeping the local nobles, the boyars, happy. The boyars liked to live it up. Lavish estates, big dinner parties, that sort of thing. All of this was funded by taxes, mainly on grain, which rested most heavily on the peasant farmers who were out there in the fields growing it. Taxes were paid by taking a share of the grain, not in money. Feudalism did not exist in Wallachia. It was abolished in 1746, but functionally it didn't make that much of a difference. 
If you didn't have land, you basically had nothing. But these regions were quite productive, and indeed by the end of the 18th century, Wallachia and Moldavia were the breadbasket of the Ottoman Empire, a source of economic exploitation, an almost colonial system. So if you think of the Fenariote princes as basically colonial governors, you wouldn't be far off. You have to understand, though, that the competition among Greek families themselves for these offices was intense. Part of the reason so many gifts were flowing was because the families were eager to curry favor with the sultan and edge out their competition for the office of hospodar. If your family bid for the office but you didn't get it, you'd be ruined financially for life. Even if you got the nod, you'd be in a pretty precarious position, simply by way of having paid more than any of your other competitors. And because the sultans, by the beginning of the 19th century, were broke, it was to their advantage to swap the princes out for one another pretty frequently, because each time a hospodar got sacked, it meant another contest to appoint his successor. So if you were the successful bidder for the office, say your Ion Karagea having paid your 8,000 bags of gold, you're instantly saddled with a lot of debts, and you've got a short time to pay them off, because in a couple of years at most, the sultan is going to find one reason or another to depose you, and start the process all over again. Coming from a situation like this, the hospodar wouldn't hesitate to recoup his operating expenses from his own people, who, as you recall, are already squeezed to the breaking point by taxes. I've gone into this lengthy background to show you how these various factors were all pulling Wallachian society in different directions. The sultans, who demanded money and grain, the Fenariote princes, who were, more often than not, in it for themselves, and the boyars who also depended on the agricultural bounty of the common people for their lavish whining and dining lifestyle. This was the reality of living in a place like Wallachia in the second decade, a land of peasant farmers being fleeced pretty much by everybody, a country with no middle class, a deeply religious Orthodox Christian country under the rule of Muslim sultans, and a country very, very far from the palaces and battlefields of Western Europe, which were then embroiled in the Napoleonic Wars, a conflict that few people in Wallachia in 1812 knew very much about. So imagine life in Bucharest at the beginning of the second decade. Bucharest was more or less a medieval city in 1812. Its main buildings were churches and the homes of boyars, though there was a notable cloth mill in the city at that time. The main road out of town was paved, if you could call it that, with logs, the old-fashioned corduroy road. Streets were dark at night, littered with horse crap and garbage, as most cities were at that time. You can imagine how it smelled. Cities were even rarer in Eastern Europe than they were elsewhere on the continent or in America. And cities in this era were exceptionally dangerous places to live. Not only were people crowded in on top of each other in generally dreadful conditions, but places like Bucharest, being the hubs of economic activity drawing in goods and commerce from farther afield, were places of exchange not just of money, but also of organisms and diseases. Few people realize this today in our largely antiseptic western cities, but wherever significant numbers of human beings live, rats always live alongside them. And unless you happen to be listening to this podcast on an airplane, I can virtually guarantee that wherever you are, there are a significant number of rats somewhere within a hundred feet of where you sit, and they depend on you for their very lives. Rats are part of an urban ecosystem that was even more pronounced in pre-modern cities than it is today. In these kinds of places, like Bucharest in 1812, the various parts of this ecosystem, humans, dogs, cats, horses, pigs, rats, fleas, crows, 
All of these parts generally manage to live together in a state of generally harmonious filth. But occasionally, the balance could be upset, sometimes by something you couldn't even see without a microscope, and the results could be catastrophic. That's what happened in Bucharest around the time of Ion Karagea's arrival, and just perhaps because of it. Let me give you a word of warning. This next part of the episode is going to be a little more gross and graphic than I usually get on this show, as we get into the less savory details of what bubonic plague is and how it works. If you're about to eat soon, I suggest pausing this show and temporarily going on to something else, dead ideas perhaps, until you don't have an appetite to ruin. Plague is caused by one of the most vile and disgusting organisms on planet Earth a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. This horrible thing lives in the digestive tract of fleas, but it doesn't kill them directly. Fleas can't digest it. If a flea ingests Yersinia pestis, it'll just sit there, and as more and more of them pile up, it creates a blockage inside the flea's body. When the flea bites a mammalian host and begins drinking its blood, it vomits up some of the backed-up Yersinia pestis bacteria into the wound. Because the bacteria prevent the flea from digesting its food, blood, the flea keeps biting more and more frequently, despite the fact that it's literally starving to death. This is how the infection spreads. Lots of fleas live on rats. Your average black rat carries seven fleas. Rats do die of plague, and in fact plague epidemics usually begin as epizootics. An epizootic is a pandemic that affects animals. As rats start dying, the fleas on them jump onto other living rats. As a result, rats begin to carry more and more fleas. By the end of an epizootic, your typical black rat, remember, it normally has seven fleas, by the end of the epizootic, your typical black rat has 100 to 150 plague-infected fleas on it. As the rat populations die, the fleas look for new hosts. As I said before the break, rats always live in close proximity to humans, so guess which host is next. The real slate wiper for humans comes when the plague becomes pneumonic, that is, capable of being transmitted by inhaling particles from an infected person, which means you don't have to have been bitten by a flea to get sick. Before it becomes pneumonic, plague can be expected to kill about 30% of those it infects. If it gets airborne, though, that number rises to 70%, and in some outbreaks, close to 100. If you were unlucky enough to catch the plague, here is what would be in store for you. About two days after infection, you'll start feeling chills, then spike 102 degree fever. Gangrene may begin to appear on your fingers, toes, the ends of your nose and ears, etc. You'll experience muscle cramps and seizures. As the disease progresses, excruciating pain occurs, largely as a result of your skin rotting while you're still alive and contracting all over your body. If you have the pneumonic version, you'll be coughing violently and spewing little droplets of poison everywhere, as well as vomiting blood. The disease affects the brain, so you may literally go insane. Ugly lumps filled with pus, uh, they're called buboes or plague tokens, these will appear around lymph nodes. If you're lucky, you'll die quickly. If you're not lucky, you'll writhe around in agony for several days before dying a meaningless and horribly painful death. The plague drifts in and out of European and Asian history for several centuries. 
One of the worst outbreaks of plague in world history occurred in the year 542, what's known as the Plague of Justinian. The Byzantine Empire was then at the height of its power and influence, and it was a crossroads of trade and cultural exchange throughout the Old World. When plague struck Constantinople in 542, probably coming in from abroad somewhere, it had a devastating effect. At one point during the summer, the disease killed 10,000 people a day, and bodies had to be dumped into an old fortress because no one was around to bury them. Even Justinian himself, the Byzantine emperor, caught the plague. He survived, just barely. The worst outbreak of all began in the mid-1330s, in Central Asia. It spread through, guess where, Constantinople, and then blasted outward from there to every place where the Byzantines had trade relationships, which is to say just about everybody in Europe. From 1347 to 1351, the Black Death tore through country after country in Europe and the Middle East. It's not sure how many people the epidemic killed, but it may have been as high as 45 to 50 percent of the population of the world, all dead within four years. Think about that. Half the world's population dead within a four-year period. The Black Death was basically the equivalent of a nuclear war today. Then it receded, though not entirely. Smaller-scale outbreaks of bubonic plague continued to flare up in Europe pretty regularly for the next few centuries. One of the most famous of these mini-pandemics was the one that struck London in 1665, the year before the Great Fire of London. The plague killed 100,000 people, and the fire, less than a year later, leveled the old medieval city. The plague struck Vienna in 1679, leaving 76,000 dead. It broke out in Eastern Europe, including Wallachia, again in 1738, killing 50,000. Then, in 1812, it was again Wallachia's turn. Ion Karagea, the Greek-born prince, had duly paid the sultan his 8,000 bags of gold for the office of Hospodar. The sultan, Mahmud II, who had been on the Ottoman throne since 1808, was apparently reluctant even after this to appoint Karagea to rule Wallachia. He was too useful at court. Apparently he forced Karagea to agree that he'd resign after three years. Whatever the compromise, Karagea arrived in December 1812. As I mentioned earlier, the palace burned down the first night he was there, from what cause we don't know. Karagea had brought with him, as was customary, a retinue of courtiers and lackeys from Istanbul. The traditional story is that one of these men was infected with plague, and thus Karagea brought the pestilence with him from the capital. The courtier, whose name is not recorded, died not long after, and the epidemic began to rage. Although this is the traditional story, there's some question as to whether it's literally accurate. The first official report of a death from the plague was not in December 1812, but six months later, in mid-June 1813. A man from the neighborhood of Vakaresti in southeast Bucharest died under mysterious circumstances. Official doctors were called in. They examined the body and determined that he had died of plague. Almost immediately, a decree of quarantine was published in the official books of Bucharest, and the city gates were closed. This was on July 1st, 1813. As between the traditional account and the official records, I'll take the official records story. With as much fear as there was of plague, I find it hard to believe that a man would have died of it six months earlier and then no action was taken until June, or that the disease wouldn't have begun to spread in those six months. The history of plague outbreaks in Europe demonstrate that the disease tended to spread more readily in warmer months in the spring and summer than in winter. Obviously there's more movement and commerce, crops are growing and organisms getting stirred up and such. Plague epidemics often burn themselves out when autumn and winter comes. 
That doesn't mean that it's unheard of that one could have begun in December, but in this case I think it's more likely that it began in June. Yet something does ring true about the traditional account, at least in a roundabout sense. It seems likely that the plague did travel to Bucharest from Istanbul, even if it did not literally travel with one of Karagea's men. In both previous world pandemics of bubonic plague, Justinian's in 542 and the Black Death of 1347, Constantinople, Istanbul, was instrumental as a transmission point of the disease. All of Europe and much of Asia came to trade its wares at Constantinople, whose open-air markets in the Middle Ages were famous for offering goods from all over the world, as far away as China and Britain. In the Ottoman era, these had become the bazaars for which Istanbul was known in later centuries, still a hub of commerce. And there apparently was a significant outbreak of plague in Istanbul in 1812 and 1813. I had a hard time finding anything that went into this subject in any detail, but it seems clear that the disease incubated in the Ottoman capital and then spread outward to its provinces through trade, commercial, and political connections. Karagea's administration and the city fathers of Bucharest at least get credit for taking quick action. As cases of the plague began to spring up in various parts of the city, teams of officials representing the court, together with groups of Orthodox priests, began to fan out and warn people of the danger. Others in the meantime, especially the boyars and the wealthy, those who could afford to travel, got the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Many immediately fled to Brasov or Sibiu in Transylvania. Those wealthy residents who couldn't get out before the city gates were closed were locked up in their mansions, possibly the safest place to be, where plague usually spreads fastest in the poorest and most densely populated areas of a city. A quarantine of 14 days was imposed on all goods entering or leaving Bucharest. Even money that was brought into the city had to be washed in vinegar before it could be used. Karagea also established a hospital at a place called Dudesti, a 15-room villa where severe cases would be treated in isolation from the rest of the population. Consequently, many of the plague dead were buried at Dudesti. This becomes an important detail later. Food and other goods destined for the city were stopped at the walls, where an official was shut up in a kind of little booth or kiosk. That must have been a fun job. And his job was to make sure anything from outside passed through several layers of smoke before it was allowed in. Smoke uh, supposedly having a disinfectant effect. Plague, when it strikes a city like Bucharest was in 1813, had a familiar footprint, and left a familiar pattern of behavior in its wake that had changed little since the Middle Ages. Essentially, a city under plague quarantine would be basically locked down. Streets were empty, particularly at night, commerce slowed to a trickle, and as the cases of the dead and infected grew worse, eventually commerce came to a halt. Quarantines in plague-stricken cities sometimes did as much harm as good, a house where somebody had come down with the plague would be under quarantine for two weeks, and by quarantine that meant nobody from that house could set foot outside during that time, and nothing could get in. Thus, any members of a family who hadn't yet come down with the disease were pretty much doomed to catch it, from being forced into close quarters with infected family members. That's to say nothing of how to get basic necessities, food and clean water, which was hard enough to come by even when an epidemic wasn't raging. Quarantines were a death sentence for many people. The people of Bucharest, as well as many other plague-stricken cities in the early modern world, had some peculiar ideas about what caused it and what could ward off the pestilence. There have always been wives' tales about remedies and talismans, certain herbs worn in a little bag around the neck, but of course they did no good. People also clutched handkerchiefs soaked in vinegar to their noses and mouths while walking about. This was called a nosegay. Many people thought smoking could help ward off the plague. 
Hundreds of small clay pipes are often found in the archaeological record of a plague-stricken city. While I couldn't verify that this happened in Bucharest in 1813, in the London Plague of 1665, a rumor got started that prostitutes who were infected with syphilis evidently had immunity from the plague, causing a run on the brothels and the spread of that disease, which in many ways is worse than the plague. Oh, and syphilis does not confer immunity from bubonic plague. Of course, that's nonsense. In any event, false and sometimes dangerous rumors of immunity spring up in the wake of any large-scale plague epidemic. Fire was also collateral damage in a plague city. The ancient Greeks, in the form of no less than Hippocrates himself, the original doctor, claimed that the setting of fires would ward off plague. In some cases, city officials went around creating bonfires at key junctures, specifically to generate smoke to cut the pestilential air. This was done not just in cases of plague. Fire setting was employed, for example, in the yellow fever outbreak of Philadelphia in 1793. Some people genuinely did have immunity for whatever reason. Those who didn't get sick and who were willing to take a calculated gamble that they wouldn't come down with the disease were quick to take advantage of the rapidly spreading disaster. All the sources I read on Karagea's plague, granted there aren't very many of them, emphasized the wave of robbery and lawlessness that broke out in Bucharest, particularly at the height of the epidemic in August 1813 when it was killing 300 people a day. Groups of robbers fanned out throughout the city, targeting the houses of the rich. Some were left empty when their owners fled for the countryside, but it doesn't seem like the robbers were too particular about attacking anybody they found still at home. There are reports of savage beatings, murders, and rapes at the hands of robbers seeking easy plunder. As is true in any big epidemic, burying the dead became a huge problem in Bucharest. The biggest graveyard was near Dudesti. In the early days of epidemics, priests and other officials would be run ragged attending to all the burials, but as the deaths mount, eventually they give up and grave digging becomes haphazard and desperate. Plague pits, common graves or victims undifferentiated by class or status, started to appear in Bucharest. Carts piled with bodies, slick and greenish-black from those pus-filled sores, rumbled through the streets, being pulled by horses who were exhausted, overworked, and often themselves dying of disease. Not all the bodies on the carts were dead. Telling when a person was actually dead was something of an inexact science until fairly recently, and bubonic plague sometimes does induce a coma-like state in its later stages. Numerous victims were buried alive, a particularly horrifying nightmare for people in the 19th century. One account of a burial detail that survives from the plague reads, quote, Today we gathered 15 dead, but only buried 14, because one ran and we could not catch him. So just imagine what Bucharest must have been like during that terrible summer of 1813. The gates of the city are closed and barred. Food is dwindling and clean water hard to find. Except for plague officials, priests, criminals, and tenders of carts overloaded with dead bodies, the streets are deserted. A pall of thick smoke hangs over the city, and in every street there's the orange glow of flames. You might be able to hear people moaning or even screaming from within their shuttered houses. The smell of death is everywhere. This is Bucharest at the height of Karagea's plague. I've been focusing on Bucharest and the impact of plague in an urban environment, but the epidemic wasn't just limited to the city. It was raging in the Romanian countryside, too. At least two other towns along the Danube were also quarantined, and there are reports that the plague was everywhere. Wallachia was covered in darkness and death. The plague was still going at full strength through the autumn. In October, what few gravediggers were left in Bucharest had filled up even the makeshift plague pits. 
Dead bodies were now being buried in gardens or churchyards or really anywhere they would fit. Except for the crowing of carrion birds, the city was eerily silent. In that same month, October, Karagea's officials made a notable exception to the quarantine rule. Wine or spirits could be sold within the city so long as it was passed through the windows, no direct contact, for fear of contamination. They made this exception probably out of social demand. Under these conditions, what else would you do but drink? By January 1814, the plague had killed at least 20,000 people. The true death toll will never be known. It's hard to estimate these things accurately without modern records. Ion Gika claimed 90,000 died, but that almost certainly includes the death toll from the countryside as well as the city. Undoubtedly, it was one of the most lethal events ever to befall the small country of Wallachia. The plague was still going strong in February 1814, when the last of Bucharest's open-air markets that had still been operating, the famous Obor, finally closed down. It's estimated that between the death toll and the exodus from when the quarantine was initially imposed, only one-third of the population of the city remained. Bucharest's population was estimated at 60,000 about 15 years later in 1831, so two-thirds of that yields a figure of around 40,000, the most common quote for the mortality of Karagea's plague. In December 1814, after raging for over a year, the plague finally began to decline in Bucharest. As is inevitable after a high-mortality disaster, the familial and legal relations among the survivors were considerably changed. Property owned by plague victims had passed in some cases to distant relatives. Labor was again expensive, and the city slowly recovered, as if from a war. Ion Gika says that in the months and years after the plague, people were eager to find happiness, and thus there was a spike in weddings in Bucharest and the surrounding areas. He gives a fascinating and very detailed account of a traditional Wallachian wedding, with celebrations lasting three days and a lot of good food and wine. Because Gika's manuscript has not been translated into English, I had to use Google Translate to make it intelligible, and even then it threw some clangers at me. Just for grins, I'm going to read exactly what I got back from Google Translate on the subject of these traditional Romanian weddings. Quote, After the wedding, a large meal with sugar beet from Manolaki beer and pastries from the famous Pascu, with wine from Dragasani, with Delu Mare wormwood, and with vanilla and ravine. Waiters and hunters all night, and on the day, the nuns, father-in-law, and wedding lovers drank in their homes with lure. This breeze at the bottom lasted three days, and at Boyars, he held seven days and seven nights, according to the law of gentlemen and kings. A wedding was over, and ten started that Bucharest was celebrating a celebration. The valley had changed in joy. End quote. It's a little mangled, but you'll have to fill in the holes yourself on that one but it definitely sounds like a good time. As for Karagea, he definitely made hay while the sun shone. In keeping with the tradition of the Hospodar, even after the plague, he squeezed as much money as he could out of the people he ruled. When he got into office in 1812, his annual income was 1.5 million lei, not sure what a lei is, and when he left office it was 3.7 million lei. Some of that was from selling noble titles or customs duties, but undoubtedly a lot of it came from the sweat of the peasants' brows. This after their families and villages had been destroyed by the plague that he and his party were accused of introducing in the first place. As I said earlier, I tend to doubt the story that the plague was introduced by one of Karagea's courtiers. More likely, I suspect the legend arose because the local people resented Karagea and his corrupt rule. So, of course, why wouldn't he also be responsible for the epidemic? Karagea broke his vow to the sultan to resign after three years, 
He was still in office in 1816 when a revolt rose against him, headed by some rebellious boyars. Wallachia was full of restive sentiment in the second decade, and in fact in 1821 there was a large-scale uprising against Ottoman rule, under Tudor Vladimirescu, which, although ultimately not successful in gaining independence, did mark the end of the rule of the Fanariotes. Caragea was not around to see this happen. Fearing that he would soon be removed from office, either by popular revolt or by the Sultan himself, after stashing considerable amounts of money in England, Russia, and Switzerland, in what today we would call offshore accounts, Ion Caragea fled to Transylvania, then ruled by the Austrians, in September 1818. He eventually settled in Athens, where he lived off the money he'd fleeced from Wallachia for the rest of his life. He died in 1844. The state of public health did improve in Wallachia, though not directly as a result of this plague. A series of cholera epidemics in the ensuing years resulted in the creation of an official quarantine committee in the early 1830s. Much of the world was being raked by cholera at this same time. Some controversial scholarship traces the origin of these cholera epidemics to events in the second decade, but that's another story, which I may or may not cover in a future episode. The plague that bears Karagea's name was bitterly remembered by the people of Wallachia, and later by the citizens of the modern nation of Romania. Its shadow remains even into the early years of this century. In 2006, a homeowner in Bucharest came to the editorial office of a local newspaper, concerned about what he called the irresponsible activities of a construction company that was digging a deep pit near his home as part of the foundation of a new building. The problem was that the building site was in Dudesti and rumored to be right on top of what was the largest plague pit dug in Bucharest during the epidemic nearly 200 years before. The homeowner's question to the newspaper was simple. If that diseased ground was disturbed, could the plague come back to life and make a resurgence in Bucharest? Surprisingly and distressingly, the answer appears to be yes. The bacilli that causes bubonic plague, Yersinia pestis, can survive for up to 500 years. That sounds pretty alarming, but without the benefit of being a biologist, I'm not sure it's as likely as it might seem at first. My understanding is that live specimens of plague that survive from the past are pretty rare these days, and can only be found, for example, in the bodies of victims buried in permafrost. As certain Romanian building authorities pointed out after, after the Dudesti excavation, various other buildings have in recent times been built on the sites of old plague pits, and to date no epidemic has resulted. Still, it makes you think. The idea of a 200-year-old plague getting loose in the world after digging up an old plague pit is like something out of a horror movie. In point of fact, though, the bubonic plague doesn't need to crawl out of a 200-year-old plague pit to get loose in the world. It still exists today, even in the United States. As recently as 2013, 13 cases of the plague were reported in western states, with two deaths. Bubonic plague is also listed as a potential bioweapon, a boon for terrorists, if they can manage to get their hands on it. Karagea's plague is undoubtedly a fairly obscure event, and one you'd have to scour your history books pretty hard, as I did, to even find mention of. But at least 40,000 real people died in this disaster and its legacy is not so far away in time or space as we may think. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. I'd like to give a shout out to some fellow podcasters, including B.T. Newberg of the show Dead Ideas, which I highly recommend. 
Dead Ideas is a show about things that people once believed in, but don't anymore, and why. Really fun show that will teach you a lot of interesting things about the past that you never thought of before. Self-mummification is uh, a one that sticks out in my mind. I also have to mention another of my favorite podcasts, History by Hollywood. I recently did a guest appearance on that show discussing the movie The Right Stuff. It was a really great episode, great time. I'm really proud of how it came out. So big thanks to Martin and Andrew who run that terrific show again. It's called History by Hollywood, and I also highly recommend it. Once again, remember my upcoming class, The Roaring 1920s. That'll be Sunday, April 28th. $50 to join that class, or $40 to get access to the recorded video. PayPal.me slash HistoryShawn. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash SeanMunger. Big, big thanks to my newest Patreon supporter, Susan Connolly. Thanks very much, Susan. Very greatly appreciated. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, SeanMunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include some web articles in Romanian, which I'll link to on the webpage for this show. One of them is titled 40,000 Doses of Plague Beneath Bucharest by Minea Talau from a website called Ziua, uh, 2006. Also, Letters to Vasil Alexandri by Ion Gika, which I think was published in 1878. That's fortunately on Wikisource, but again, not in English. And Constantin C. Giurescu, History of Bucharest, published by the Publishing House for Sports and Tourism, 1976. Treat that source with caution. It's a communist-era publication that's more of a booster guide than real history. But when you're doing the history of Romania, in English, you take what you can get. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.